Welcome to our morning worship service today. It is good to see you in the house of the Lord. We're going to commence our worship by the singing of Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's number one in our hymnal. There is no chorus in this particular uh, tune that we're going to be singing today, but it was the heart of God's servant so many years ago that if he had a thousand lives to live, If he had a thousand voices to be able to raise to his God, he would devote every single one of them. Well, we have the one voice and the one heart that God has given to us and the one life. And it's only what is done for Christ that will last. So therefore, as we enter on a brand new Lord's Day, God gives us by his grace to come here to worship him. He's given us life and health and strength to whatever measure you have And let us therefore capture this day and use every moment of it for the glory of our God. And so let's not wait until the second or third verse to get in and enter into the joy of singing this praiseworthy song to our God, but we'll do so with all our heart from the opening stanza. Let's stand please to worship the Lord. singing today. Now you're just about ready to sit down, but I think you're getting a bit premature here. No, though that verse in this hymn goes too quickly. There are too many, uh, there's not enough words to it, but they are precious. They are very good. Let's sing that third and fourth verse again. You'll notice that, well, I'm not sure what it says on the words behind me, but Jesus, the name that charms. Well, I think a better word would be calms our fears. So let's change that word and sing verses 3 and 4 again.
That's good singing. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let's still our hearts, please, now before the Lord in prayer, and each one praying for the Lord's blessing in your own hearts, speaking to you from his word today, and that you'd be encouraged and strengthened in your own faith. Our loving Father and our gracious God, we bow humbly, Lord, in your holy presence today. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. And dear Father, as we have been given grace to come to your house once more on a brand new Lord's Day, Father, we pray that we will know the strength, the help of the Holy Spirit in every dimension of our worship today. Father, take away, we ask, foreign thoughts, strange thoughts, thoughts of business and of work and of the issues of last week and perhaps the, the problems that may face us in this incoming week. Dear God, settle our minds, still our hearts, and help us to focus and concentrate on the business and ministry and blessings of today. Dear Lord, we lift our hearts in praise, and we would say with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And dear Father, I pray that you would come to comfort, strengthen, and bless every heart. Dear Lord, fresh upon our minds the service yesterday, the funeral service for our dear sister Flo's mum, we pray, O oh God, that you would comfort Flo and her family at this time of their loss. And Father, you know we have been, we've had several funerals the last few days and the last months. Several have been bereaved, connected with our congregation. And we pray, Lord, for your ongoing comfort and support and strength given to them. Dear Lord, remember those who are in great need today health-wise. We commit Mrs. Hamilton and June Hamilton in prayer. And Lord, we ask that you would bless her now in the hospital and keep your hand on her. And may she know your presence and strength. And Father, bring her safely through whatever procedures must take place in her life. Remember others connected with our congregation immediately that are going through times of great difficulty, whether it's physical or spiritual. Lord, bless them. Draw near to each one of us. Father, may today, as we will be under the word of God, we pray for our brother Boyle that you would bless his ministry among us, we're very thankful for bringing him and his wife and children safely to Toronto. And we ask, Lord, to bless every moment that they have with us. and Bless and refresh them and comfort and encourage their hearts. And Father, as we receive the word today from your servant, may it be a word in season to every weary heart. May it be a word of salvation to those who are outside of Christ. Dear God, grip the hearts of people who have heard the gospel word time and time again. Perhaps someone who will be here to hear it for the very first time. 
Lord, grip their hearts, speak effectually to them, and bring them to a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Father, bless, we pray, the needs of all our churches across Canada, the ones who are without pastors at this time, others who are going through whatever struggles or challenges we may not know the details of, but Lord, be with them. We think of the the church in the United States, our missionary stations. Remember the work in Mexico City today. Remember also our brother Lalo Peña in Cordoba. Remember Ramon Sosa in Dominican Republic. Be with our brother in Jamaica, Richard Craig. Strengthen and bless him and all our other mission works across the world and our churches in Northern Ireland and in Australia, in Nepal, all of these centers, Lord, where the Word of God is going out faithfully every single day. Lord, bless and prosper our brethren who are faithful. And Lord, we know that outside of our relatively small denomination, uh, there are others who are faithful to the the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, your mighty blessing upon them as well to increase and cause the invisible church of Christ to grow day by day. And Lord, until that great consummation when our Lord Jesus Christ will come back again and receive all to himself, dear Lord, may his name be glorified today among us. And may we rejoice one with another and be comforted in the Spirit of God. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's sing again, please, to the Lord's praise, Psalm 116, Selection B. And we'll stand again as we sing.
may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles for our congregational reading to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. Second Corinthians, chapter 1. We're reading the first 12 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, Have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, beyond strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life? But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation, our behavior in the world and more abundantly to you, Word. What a precious portion of Scripture that the Apostle by the Holy Spirit has given to the church. And as he was directing his words specifically to the Corinthian congregation. Well, so it was to be read in all the New Testament churches, and therefore 
It is applicable to every single believer that has lived from that time and will live unto the end until Christ Jesus comes back again. The apostle saw that what events transpired in his life, they were not random. They were not disconnected. They were not something by chance. But he knew that what he experienced personally and what others that were with him in the gospel experienced, it was a training ground in their lives individually so that God would make use of them in the lives of others. And this comes so powerfully to us. He tells us in verse 4, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. In other words, whatever God allows you to go through, whatever valley you are trudging through just now, know this, that God intends that for our benefit, but not just us. He intends it, dear brothers and sisters, that we will be beneficial to others. And if we can grasp that truth, if we get a hold of that in our hearts, it will help us. It'll help us big time when we're right in the thick of it, when we're right in the depth of it, to realize God is polishing us. The Lord is developing our lives through sanctification in order that we will be of some help, of some encouragement to other believers, and so that we can shine brightly for the Master through the times of our depth and our lack of comfort, so that we will be built up in our most holy faith. May the Lord encourage and strengthen your hearts as we have read this scripture today. Well, we were yesterday at the funeral service for Mrs. Tam, Flo's mother, and I would encourage you please to continue in your prayers for the gospel that went out at that service and that those who were unsaved of family members and friends who were gathered, well, the Lord would speak on to their hearts. And of course, to continue his comfort to our sister Flo at this time and be with her. And also, as we knew, know in our congregation, we had three families who were bereaved in the last couple of weeks. And all of these folks that were loved ones, they died last Monday, October the 10th, two weeks ago. And they all, praise God, knew Christ, and they've gone on to their long reward and glory. And so that is a blessing. And uh, one of them, we have a thank you card here uh, from Prisca and Sharika and Priyan Prince. And I want to read that to you today because their dear grandmother also passed away and went to be with the Lord. We would like to express our deepest gratitude for keeping us in your thoughts and prayers during the difficult time. We would also like to thank Pastor Saunders, Mrs. Saunders, the church community, for attending and comforting us during the visitation of our grandmother's funeral on Friday, October the 14th. 
We continue to trust that the Lord will continue to strengthen and comfort us and our families during this challenging time. And God bless you all. Sincerely, Prisca, Sharika, and Priyan Prince. And so we want to let you folks know we're continuing to hold you up in prayer. So thank you very much for that thoughtful card. We bid everyone a warm word of welcome today. Good to have you in the Lord's house, and we're thankful that you're here in person. And if you're not in person but online, you're also very, very welcome. We say a special word of welcome to the Boyle family. I'll be giving a few more words about them and our brother Jason, who will be bringing the word today a little bit later before he comes to minister the word. Also happy to see our brother Frank DiDerno back with us and his wife uh, Clarissa and their little boy Franco. Our brother was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, ministering there for two Lord's Days, and he's back safe and sound. And we trust, brother, the Lord will bless your ministry there and encourage you as you continue with us here. I want you to continue, please, in your prayers for Mrs. Diana Bershansky. Learned last Lord's Day afternoon, she uh, broke her ankle as she was out walking her dog and uh, just took a very sudden turn. And so she is uh, needing our prayers now. It's been very difficult for her and uh, certainly for the school. She's one of our teachers in the school. And we ask for prayer that the Lord would bless Diana at this time. Also in my opening prayer, I was thinking about Mrs. June Hamilton. We've been praying for Mrs. Hamilton over the last week and a half since we learned about her difficulty and the cancer uh, that she had, has had, and she had to go into the hospital for emergency surgery just yesterday, and we want to keep our sister, please, in prayer. She's the wife of Reverend Stephen Hamilton from Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, and so please remember our dear sister in the Lord. She's going to have further surgery on either Monday or Tuesday, and then they'll begin to find out how they can help. But I know this is a very, very serious situation as well. Also, we've been praying for a little boy, Simeon Frank, in our Alabama congregation. This little boy, who's the grandson of Myron Mooney, the minister there, he had, well, it was very complicated surgery on his skull this past week. Now, they, they believe that he has come through that. The doctors say it was a successful surgery, but you can imagine the mom and dad in that situation, uh, very, very hard for them. So do remember that whole family and that the Lord's hand would be upon them all. Let me remind you, please, of some very important ministry uh, going on today in our church and in the next little while. And first of all, today we want to have our prayer time before the service at 5.50 today and our evening service tonight at 6.30. Now, we encourage you to come back again, of course, to every Lord's Day evening service, but especially tonight because our brother Boyle will be bringing a specific missionary presentation of the work in Mexico City, and so I know that will be a very encouraging time for you. And as our brother is here doing deputation across Canada, the offerings that are being collected for the work in Mexico City, well, those are special offerings that we would ask you to attend to as God has provided and blessed you, so you'll be able to share that blessing with others. 
And if you can dedicate on your offering envelope and whatever special offering you would like to give, both today and tomorrow or later on tonight, and if you're not prepared today, well, those offerings will come in and we'll be sure that they are directed uh, to uh, the needs of the work in Mexico City. This is a busy week for us because starting Monday to Friday, the congregation in Port Hope, they're having their 29th anniversary services, and uh, Reverend Brian McClung, who is a minister in Newton Abbey, Northern Ireland, is a special guest speaker this week, Monday to Friday, 7.30, and you'd be very, very welcome to attend there uh, to the church in Port Hope, and if you do not are not familiar with where the location of that is, you can go online and find that out or ask one of our elders, and they'll be sure to tell you. I know Reverend Cranston would greatly be encouraged by anyone who is able to visit there. And I know our own prayer meeting will be on Wednesday night at 7.30, but if that's your only free night and you would like to go to Port Hope, we're going to release you to do that, and so you'll be able to have that freedom to go there and enjoy those services. Sometimes it's either a feast or a famine, and we've been going through a, fam a feasting time this last while with visiting speakers. And because Reverend Brian McClung, usually the visiting speaker from the Port Hope meetings, comes to us on the following Lord's Day. And so it's our great joy to welcome uh, Brother McClung next Lord's Day. It will be a Reformation Lord's Day, and he'll be our preacher next Lord's Day. So please keep our brother in your prayer as well. As we are back into our fellowship times after the evening services, and we've also had one of our international uh, dinners as well, we want to get back into our hospitality teams. And so there is a sheet for sign-up for ladies and men if you want to be a part of those teams too. We're not going to keep anybody away from that. But our elders and our deacons' wives, they're uh, behind this, and we want to get everyone involved, uh, ladies especially, put your name on one of the hospitality teams, and then you will not have to serve by any means a regular basis, but it'll be spread out. And of course, the more we have, the more we'll be able to put those teams on, and it will be a good blessing and encouragement for everyone as well. I'll appreciate very much your prayers as uh, in November, in mid-time in November, I have to begin again a three-week lecture series on the subject of Christology for our Geneva Reform Seminary students, and I'll greatly appreciate your prayers for that. It'll be every day for a period of three weeks, and it'll be via Zoom, and so greatly ask for your prayers for me and for the students as well. They also need it. Brother Frank DiDerno knows what that's like. He suffered through the last series of lectures that I did on that subject matter. Although the subject matter is great, you just have to labor through the lecturer. And I appreciate your prayers for students and, and lecturer as well. I have a very special announcement to make to you today. And it has to do with some administration changes that have taken place within Whitfield Christian Schools. We often encourage you to remember our school ministry. It's ongoing every day. It is a very vital work and ministry of our congregation here and for the Christian community. Dr. McClellan, who is the founder of the Whitfield Schools 
And actually, he and his wife are away for a couple of weeks now, uh, taking a break with some of their family. And uh, he has served as the president of Whitfield Christian Schools for many, many years. And as we have become developing in the administrative things, Dr. McClellan has desired to step down from any direct involvement in the school itself, and we so appreciate the years of service that our brother has given to this vital ministry as he was the senior pastor here in the church and the founder of the school. Well, that's now a title that the session and board uh, wish to have our, our, our brother take, and so he is now the founder as far as a title goes, and we're going to retire the title of president for our school. Another very important uh, development in regard to administration is that our brother Jonathan McAnally has been asked and approached by the session and the board, and they have approved him uh, to become the new administrator of the school. Now, that is a position that I have held for many years, but it's time for that change to take place as well. And so, our brother Jonathan has a good history in our school. He was among the first of the students in 1989 when our school began, and he was in grade 5. And so our school started from grade 1 to grade 5 then, and we added a grade each year, and we went up to grade 10. And at that point, we were not able to continue into the high school years of 11 and 12, and so Jonathan was there until grade 10, and then he went out to another local high school to finish. But he has been involved for many, many years in the process of our school, in policy making, in advice and giving direction, and he has been on the school advisory committee for five years. And so he has been directly involved in many areas of the, of the school, though very much behind the scenes. He has also been very much a part of the business community for 25 years, and he is an elder in our congregation. Jonathan's role will be to act as a primary liaison between our school and our church. And that, of course, is the job of the administrator and something that I have been doing for these years. And this is a very important link because we always want the school to know its direction and commitment and connection through the church ministry because Whitfield is a ministry of this congregation. And so we want to maintain a very strong link and communication, and that will be an important job that the administrator will have, and our brother McAnally will be uh, a part of that. He will at times be involved in visiting the school. He'll be there to encourage the staff members and to be a part and just to do whatever he can to facilitate. He'll be involved in the hiring process of staff members along with the principal, and the board has also encouraged and put along two board members to serve with him, Brother Dan Browett, who has also been serving as the, on the advisory committee, and also Brother Maher Lewis. And so we have a good team of men working with the church and working through and with the school, and we need to have the prayers of each one of you 
uh, supporting us and encouraging as the administration and the school ministry continues on. So I know our brother McAnally would greatly appreciate your prayers for this new post and position that he has and that we will support him and he knows that we are behind him 100%. We're going to sing again to the Lord's praise, number 549, 549, and we will stand as we sing this to the Lord's praise. joy for us to welcome again Reverend Jason Boyle to our church and also his wife Danielle. I think she is out now with her, their little boys, uh, Jonathan and Caleb, and we're very, very happy that they're able to join with us in uh, Toronto. Our brother and his wife and family have been doing deputation meetings across Canada, and uh, Danielle was able to visit with her parents in British Columbia. Uh, that's where she is from, and they had some nice time with them. Our brother was preaching in our Cloverdale congregation for two Lord's Days, and that was encouraging for the congregation there. And he was with us in Calgary, uh, along with our minister's week of prayer, visited also the churches up in Prince George and Penticton. And while he's here, he'll be visiting Port Hope and Barrie as well. Our brother is the minister in Mexico City. He pioneered that congregation there and has seen it come to constitution and is very, very involved in training and helping and teaching uh, other men in that part of the world and uh, an encouragement to uh, Lalo Pena, who has also been licensed and uh, ministering in Cordoba about three and a half or four hours from Mexico City and then also been very instrumental in working with another brother, Ramon Sosa, 
who was also licensed for the Dominican Republic work. And there's been some very encouraging developments there, as I shared with you last Lord's Day, about the upcoming constitution of that church, hopefully in the month of January of 2023. So these are some developments, and our brother has been so instrumental in developing and working with these men, and I know he's going to be sharing with you tonight in the missionary uh, meeting specifically about the other developments that are happening and some things that we are so encouraged about. And I just want to thank you, brother, for your ministry and your faithfulness to the Lord and welcome you to our pulpit today. The Lord bless you. Encourage his word. Amen. It's a joy to be with you today. Good to be back in Toronto and to see you. Thank you so much for your prayers for us. Uh, It's the first time we're here together as a whole family with our two children, and we know that you've been praying for us and praying for the adoption specifically, and we thank you so much for that and your prayers for us as well in Mexico City. And yes, if you would continue to pray for us, if you come back tonight, you'll be able to see the video presentation of what the Lord has done. And of course, as we're here, um, feel free to stop and talk to us, ask ask us any questions uh, about what the Lord is doing and how you can participate in prayer especially. And we thank, we're very thankful for the support of this congregation as well as other churches in, in North America. We're turning in the scriptures today to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 13. First Chronicles, chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. First Chronicles 13, beginning in verse 1. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David went up, went up in all Israel to, Be- to Bela, that is to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God the Lord, that dwelt between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach unto Uzzah, wherefore that place is called Perizuzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself, to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Odevedim and all that he had. 
Amen. We thank the Lord for the reading of his word. Let's pray and ask that he will apply it to our hearts. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inspired and perfect word. We thank you that as we come to you in this time of worship, in this Lord's Day, that we have the opportunity to read what you have written for us, to read your word. We pray that we would understand it, that we would apply it to our lives, that you would change us and sanctify us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would work in every heart according to its need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes a person has a plan to do something, and it doesn't work out. He fails in his attempt. Or maybe even he does the opposite of what he was trying to do. And what do people normally say when that happens? Well, at least he tried. He had good motives. That's how we think about ourselves, too. We, we have a plan, but it doesn't work out. We say, well, I didn't do it, but I tried. I had good motives. That's what counts, right? I had good motives. That's the most important thing. And of course, in life, sometimes just trying and having good motives is enough. It happens with our children, right? When they're very, when they're very young, there are things they can't do. But it gives us joy to see them try, even though they can't achieve it. They're trying to draw something. They're trying to tie their shoes, whatever it may be. They can't do it yet, but they have good motives. They're trying. And even as we grow, we we generally ourselves don't want to be judged according to what we've done or not done, but according to our motives. We want people to judge us according to if we had good motives or not, whether we tried or not. And I say many times in life, that's fine. The problem is when we try to apply that to our spiritual lives, And we still think that good motives are enough. When we think of God's law, God's commandments, we often want to be judged according to our motives rather than judged according to our obedience. It doesn't work that way. Good motives are not enough for God. We have to obey his word in order to please and worship him. We find that lesson here in this story when David wanted to return the Ark of the Covenant to its central place in the worship of God, but he did not do it according to how God had commanded. We read what he did in this chapter, but we need to understand the context as well. And so if you go with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we'll read a little bit of the context here so we know what was going on. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to read the first four verses. First Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So the Israelites decided to bring the ark to the battlefield in order for God to ensure their victory against the Philistines. You understand, of course, that was the thought of a people very far from God who did not understand the meaning of the ark. The ark was not something magical that they could bring into the battle to have their victory guaranteed. 
It symbolized God's presence. Only the high priest could enter that part of the tabernacle where it was once a year for the atonement of the nation's sins. The idea of taking it out of the tabernacle and bringing it onto the battlefield should have been an abomination for Israel. But that's what they did. And the Philistines, though very afraid to see the ark, fought against Israel and won and took the ark. In the next chapter, we read what happened to the Philistines when the ark was with them. Remember the story that God showed his power over their gods, over them as a people? And the Philistines wanted desperately to return the ark to Israel. They did that in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, and it came to the city of Beth Shemesh in Israel, where God killed many because they looked into the ark, which God had commanded that no one should ever do. And then the ark came to the city of Kirjath-Jerim, and there it stayed until the events of our story. And the ark was there for many years, because it was taken by the Philistines here in Samuel's day. After that, we know that Saul was king for 40 years, and then David. So for many years, for more than 60 years at least, the Ark of the Covenant was not in the tabernacle. And David realized in our passage the importance of returning it to the tabernacle because in all those years, Israel was not able to worship God as they should because the symbol of his presence was not there. There was no Ark with its mercy seat so the high priest could sprinkle the blood for the atonement of sins every year. For more than 60 years, the priest had not done, high priest had not done that. And David acknowledged that too much time had passed. In verse 3, if we turn to our passage in, in 1 Chronicles, in chapter 13, in verse 3 we read that David says, we need to bring the ark of our God to us, for since the time of Saul we have not heeded it. So David recognized the problem. David rightly saw the need to return the ark to the tabernacle. So David, without any doubt, had the right motive. But the way he did it was not right, and there were consequences. So we can learn something from this story in terms of our motives. God is not satisfied with good motives. God requires obedience to his word. That's what we see in this passage, and God hasn't changed. The same for us today. Good motives are not enough for God. We also have to obey his commandments in order to please and to worship him. The first thing I want to see in this passage is that we need to have good motives in order to obey God. I need to start there because just because, good, just because good motives are not enough does not mean that they're not necessary. David here was not forced against his will to move the ark. David wanted to do it. David wanted to do the right thing. As we saw, he was right. He was absolutely right about what he wanted to do. The ark should have been in the tabernacle. The fact that it was on the property of a family in another city did not please God. That was shameful for the nation. That was shameful for the people of God at this time. They were not worshiping God as he had commanded with the ark in the tabernacle. And we can see here in our text that David had good motives. We read in verses 1 and 2, 1 Chronicles 13, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in the cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us. David said, if it seem good to you, and if it be of the Lord our God. If it be the Lord's will, that's what David was saying. He didn't want to do anything against God. There was something important to David. He was not consciously seeking to disobey God. 
He had good motives. But we'll see that although he had good motives, he did not do it correctly. But we have to start here first. We do have to have good motives in order to obey God. Because we know if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we don't even have good motives. Sometimes we don't even have the desire that we should to obey the Lord as he commands us. That may be out of laziness or any other reason, but we don't always even want to do what we should. But a true Christian is going to want to serve his God. We're going to want to do things according to his will. We're going to want to show God's, our love to God because of what he has done for us. A true Christian will have a desire to live according to God's law and obey him because we are his children. We're going to have good motives because if not, then we face the problem of hypocrisy. We do things, but not from the heart. So just obeying out of habits or to avoid the consequences. Of course, we do have to have good motives because God judges the heart. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. The Lord discerns what is in the heart. So that's the first thing we need to do before anything else, before we go on, is to examine ourselves, to examine our motives, to examine our desires, and to see if we really want to serve God or not, whether we really want to obey God or not, or whether we're simply doing what we're doing to avoid consequences, we're doing what others expect us to do so they don't bother us. Why do you come to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? All those things are good and important and necessary. Do we have good motives? Do you just do those things because you grew up doing them? Your children, young people, you just do those things because your parents tell you to? Why do we do the things that we do? First of all, we have to examine ourselves and make sure that we do have good motives. But then secondly, we need, we need to understand the consequences of n- not obeying God even with good motives. And there are consequences because God takes seriously how he is worshipped. He takes his commandments seriously. God does not look at the heart of a disobedient person and say, well, I know he disobeyed me, but his motives were pure. God does not accept any excuse for sin, not even when it is committed with the best motives. We've already seen that we cannot doubt David's, David's motives here, but he did not follow God's commands about how the ark should be moved. We read in verse 7 how David did it. They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. That seems fine, right? It was a new cart. It was not just some old piece of garbage they found on the side of the road. It says in the next verse that they accompanied it with music, with joy. The problem is that God had commanded that the ark, when it was to be moved, had to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And not just any Levites, but specifically the Kohathites. We can go back to Numbers 3, verses 29 to 31. You read with me or listen as I, as I read this passage. The families of the sons of Koash shall pitch on the side of the tabernacle southward. The chief of the house of the father of the families of the Kohathites shall be Eliasphan, the son of Uzziel, and their charge shall be the ark, and the table, and the candlestick, and the altar, and the, and the vessels of the sanctuary wherewith they minister, and the hanging and all the service thereof. So this family of the Levites was in charge of the ark. And in chapter 4 of Numbers, we read how they had to prepare the ark before moving it. They could not touch it. They had to carry it by the poles that were put into the rings on the side of the ark. God had shown very clearly how the ark was to be moved. But David did not pay attention to what God had commanded. With the best of motives, 
He did it differently. He put the ark in a cart, which God had forbidden. That's what the Philistines did when they returned it to Israel. They put it in a cart. And so there were disastrous consequences. First Chronicles 13, verses 9 and 10. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. Now that would not have happened if the ark was carried as it should be on the shoulders of the Levites. This only happened because the ark was in a new cart, and on the way it almost fell because the oxen were stumbling. And of course, Uzzah didn't want the ark to fall. Uzzah did the most normal and natural thing possible in extending his hand to steady it. But no one could touch the ark and live, and that's why God killed Uzzah. The man lost his life. But due to the fact that David wanted to do something with good motives but did not seek God in order to know how to do it. And Uzzah's death was not the only consequence. All of this also affected David and his relationship with the Lord. Read verses 11 and 12. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherefore that place is called Perizuzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? David was displeased, first of all. He was angry that the Lord had killed Uzzah. And we can only imagine David's thoughts at this moment. God, how is it possible you killed Uzzah? Why did you ruin the day? I want to bring the ark back to the tabernacle after so many years so that we can worship you as you have commanded us. I did all this for you, and this is how you repay me? David was angry because he had done everything with good motives. But God had to teach him that his good motives were not good enough. God wanted to be obeyed. We read also that David was afraid he didn't know what to do anymore. At the time, he didn't want to try again. Maybe something worse would happen. He didn't, know, he didn't want anyone else to die, and so his disobedience affected his relationship with God, just as sin always does. There are consequences when we have good motives, but we disobey God, because disobedience is disobedience, even if we want to do something good. And God is going to send consequences so that we learn. Maybe no one's going to die, but your sin can ruin someone else's life, can ruin a family, can ruin a church. And what's more, your sin affects your relationship with God. You can get angry with Him or be afraid of Him. You may get angry because you really don't know God as you should. You don't know His law well, and you think maybe God is wrong because He punished you for something you did with good motives. You may be afraid because you no longer know what to do. It seems like God punished you for something good. But don't respond in that way. Don't respond being angry, being afraid. Spend time in the Word of God to get to know your God, to get to know His law, get to know His will, because it's not hidden from you. You can obey Him with good motives, which is what David had to learn to do here. David had to learn to no longer trust his plans, no longer trust the counsel of others, but to return to God's words to find out what to do. That's what we see finally in this passage. We need to seek the right counsel in order to obey God. We already saw in verse 2 that David spoke about God's will. If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God. If it's the Lord's will, let us bring the ark of our God to us. So he said he wanted it to be the Lord's will. But then he consulted with the people and not with God. He did not consult God's word. 
because God had already said what to do with the ark when it was to be moved. And although David said the right words, if it be God's will, he ignored God's word. Now, he did seek advice. He didn't make the decision alone. We saw, you see in verse 1 that he sought counsel with the leaders of Israel. He consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. In verse 2, he consulted with the congregation. If it seemed good unto you, he was seeking the approval of the people as well. And in verse 4, we see their answer. All the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. But the problem is he didn't seek God in order to know specifically what to do. No one he consulted with told him, David, you better read that part of the law where God has told us what to do in situations like this. Because God had already given the commandment. And so it didn't matter that everything seemed right to David or to all the people. It didn't matter that everyone agreed. David did not seek the right counsel. He should have gone straight to God's word. It's the same for us. It teaches us that we need to pay more attention to God's word than even to human counsel. God had not left David without knowing what to do. And God has not left us without knowing what to do either. But David had to search. Maybe he didn't know by heart that specific passage about what to do when the ark was going to be moved, but it was there. He could have looked for what God said. And it's the same for us. Maybe you don't have the whole Bible memorized. I'm sure you don't. We can look for what God says in his word before we make decisions. Now, that doesn't mean we should never talk to anyone else, but only to God. In Proverbs, God says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, there is wisdom. But then what kind of wisdom, what kind of counsel are you receiving? You can't trust man's words without first consulting God. We should never seek the counsel of others without first seeking God and his word. And we should never heed the counsel of others if it goes against the word of God. It does not matter if it's your parents, your spouse, or even your pastor. If it goes against the word of God, it's not what you follow. And that's real. You and I both know that. I've seen people make wrong choices simply because they paid more attention to their family members than to God. I've spoken to people. I've opened the word to them so they can see what God has commanded, what God tells them to do, and they don't do it. Because their spouse or parents or someone had told them something else, their friends had given them other advice. Or worse, simply because they have a worldly perspective from having spent so much time in the things of the world. Sometimes we think that hasn't affected us as much as it has, but we can see it in our decisions. That's the reason we want everyone to be so careful. As pastors were always saying, right, be careful what you watch, be careful what you listen to. Be careful who you're spending time with. Why? Because the world is not neutral. Nothing the world produces is neutral. It's designed to take you away from God and give you a worldly perspective on life so that you make decisions according to what the world and the culture do and say, but not according to God's words. And I want to especially emphasize that for the young people here, the children here, your friends, the things you see on television, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, it affects you. It does affect you. And you begin to think as the world. And you begin to make decisions that are worldly. Instead of spending time in the Word of God to know what He tells you to do for the decisions in your life. Of course, it's not just for children and young people either. It's for all of us. We need to form the habit of seeking God in His Word 
seeking God in prayer before we make decisions. Because sometimes we do have the best motives. But even so, our decision can be sinful when it's not based on the Word of God. You can have the best motives wanting someone to be saved. But if you try to do something to achieve that person's salvation in a sinful way, it's sin before God no matter what the motive. On the other hand, we can see what happened here when David and Israel did obey, when David did seek God in his word and learn how to do this correctly. We can see that in chapter 15, 1 Chronicles 15. We'll read just a few verses to see what happened. Read verses 1 to 4 of 1 Chronicles 15. And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place which he had prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. From verses 11 to 15. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, and Joel, Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Minadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord, of, Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now David's doing it right. He had sought the Lord in the scriptures. He had found out how to do it. He was doing it right, and the Lord blessed. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. And when David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. So now they did it right. David now not only wanted to do the right thing with good motives, now he did it according to what God had said. Now he did it how the Lord had commanded it. And it worked. The Lord blessed it. That's what we want. We want to have good motives, of course. But we want also to obey God according to his word. So let's not be deceived by that saying that's so common in our day, that the only important thing is that we do it from the heart. That is simply not true. And again, I don't want to be misunderstood. Of course we have to do things from the heart. We don't want to live as hypocrites either. But we can have the best motives and still disobey God. And I've said many times in my own church that I don't doubt the motives of most of the people in my church. I, I believe them when they tell me that they want to make changes. I believe them when they tell me that they want to pray more, they want to spend more time with God, they want to participate more in the church, whatever it is. I'm not God, I can't see their hearts, I'm going to believe what they tell me they have good motives. And I don't doubt it's the same here as well, that this church is full of people with good motives. But while your motives may be good and true about these things, you may still be living in sin against God because you're not obeying Him. You can say a lot of things. But how are you living? And maybe everyone else understands. Humanly speaking, every person you talk to understands why you have a, such a hard time. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. What does God say? What does God's word say? 
Don't simply seek the approval of other people, and don't simply seek the counsel of people who, you go in, who are going to say what you want them to say. Say, well, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and they understand. Yeah, but who have you talked to? People that you know are going to tell you what you want to hear. Maybe you haven't approached the pastor or the elders or a brother and sister in Christ in the church who are going to confront you with your sin. Don't simply seek other people. Others are wrong sometimes. You need to seek God and his word to know what to do. Perhaps the most direct and, and obvious application here of the story is in regards to our worship of God. That's the context of the story here. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence with his people. It should have been in the tabernacle where God was worshipped by sacrifices. We know that God teaches us about the subject of worship in the New Testament as well. The famous words of Christ in John 4, 24. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So again, we see the two things. We have to worship God in spirit, from the heart. We never want formalistic worship. We never want to worship God externally without touching the hearts. A spirit of hypocrisy is dangerous in worship. But we also have to worship in truth, which means we truly worship, which means there are wrong ways to worship God. There are ways that go against his truth. And that's why in our churches, we only include in worship the elements that God has commanded us in his word. We have no right to add unbiblical elements to our worship because God cares about how he is not worshipped. Not just that God cares that he is worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped. It is not enough to come to church on Sunday with good motives. We have to worship him as he is commanded or we're in disobedience. As we saw in this passage, there are consequences. That means we have to strive to study God's word so that we know how to worship him correctly instead of worshipping him according to our feelings. We do not worship God according to how we feel. We do not worship God according to what makes us feel comfortable or according to what we prefer. We worship God in the local church publicly only according to what he has commanded us to do. But also what we study today applies to much more than just the public worship of God on Sundays. It applies to everything in our Christian lives. Whatever decision you make, you have to be sure that you're in obedience to God and his word and not just doing things with good motives. You can disobey God with the best of motives and it's still disobedience. It's still sin. Your good motives are not enough. You may say that you desire and you may really desire to come to church, to read his word, to love others, whatever it is in the Christian life. But if you don't do it, you are in disobedience against God. I want want to take away the excuse that your good motives are enough. God sees my heart. God knows what I want to do. Sure, he sees your heart. That's true. But if you're not obeying him, your motives aren't going to save you. God is going to discipline you for your disobedience to his law, whatever motives you might have. But the area in which this applies most importantly is in terms of salvation. To be saved, good motives are not enough. And I say it's the most important application because it has to do with the human soul. So I believe there are probably millions of people in our world who have good motives about their relationship with God. Good motives with a desire to be with him forever. I don't doubt at all that many people truly think they know God. They honestly think that the way to be right with God is to do good works, live a peaceful life, help others, and not do evil things. I don't doubt that at all. There are so many people with good motives out there. 
People want to be good fathers and good mothers and good husbands and wives and good boyfriends and girlfriends, whatever it is. They want to be good workers, good neighbors, good friends. They have good motives as to what they want to do. But good motives are not enough for salvation. They're not enough to know God and be his child and live with him forever. God requires obedience. Salvation is what God says it is. In God's word in James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. You know what that means? It means you can have good motives and try to live a good life. But you sin once and you go to hell. That's what that verse means. Your good motives are not going to save you because God requires perfect obedience to be with him forever. But we know that no one is perfect. So how can you be saved and be with God forever? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are not saved by anything you can do. By anything you do, salvation is only by grace. It is undeserved favor that you receive when you recognize that only God can save you. You need Christ. The whole, the whole topic of this passage is the Ark of the Covenant. The cover of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled for the atonement of sins. That's what Christ does for us. His blood was shed so that we might have forgiveness of sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. He takes away the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin against him. It's the only way to be saved. Not by good motives, but only by the blood of Christ. So heed my words, because hell will be filled with people with good motives. People with good motives who did not obey God and were not saved. It could be someone here today is a person with good motives. You want to love God. You want to treat others with respect. You want to live a good life. But good motives are not enough. They're not enough to save you. Your good motives can only condemn you forever. You have to obey God and repent of your sins. It's only possible if you recognize that you're a sinner, if you understand what your sins deserve, if you understand who God is. We must trust in Christ alone for salvation without depending on anyone else, without depending on yourself. Don't trust in your good motives, but obey God in repentance and faith to receive his salvation. So maybe we understand the seriousness of this matter. Uzzah paid the ultimate price for David's disobedience. He paid with his life. And that's why David reacted the way he reacted, because he realized that his disobedience had cost someone else their life. That's why he was afraid of God at that time. So may we never forget that what we do, even with the best of motives, can have a great effect on others. Think about what you're doing. Think about the decisions that you've made recently. God is not going to ignore your sin just because you had good motives. What sin have you committed recently? What decision have you taken recently with good motives? What what have you done or said recently that you did or said with good motives but really was sin against God? It's time to acknowledge your sin. Maybe ask someone's forgiveness for what you've done. 
Sometimes we, we've done or said things in our marriages, with our children. Sometimes we've done and said things in our local church that's offended someone, that's hurt someone. And you say, it wasn't my intention. I didn't mean to. I had good motives for what I said or did. Maybe you did. But you hurt or offended your brother anyway. You caused problems in your family or in your church. You need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And may we be more aware, more humble, to acknowledge our sin against God and against others, even when we do have the best motives. Because in this passage, although David said the right words, if it be God's will, he ignored God's word in order to do his own will. We do the same thing so many times. We always say that. If it be the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, God willing, but do we consult the will of God in his word? It's not that we want to do anything against God. Neither did David. He was not consciously seeking to disobey God. But while he had good motives, he didn't do it the right way. It's the same for us. Although we're not, I hope, seeking to actively disobey God, we don't always pay attention to what he says in his word. We think what we desire is good enough, and we don't understand the need to seek God and to know him, to understand what he requires. The good motives are not enough for God. We also have to obey his word in order to please and worship him. May God open our eyes that we may obey him as he has commanded and as he deserves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's been opened to us today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take the preaching of this word, the reading of your word, and apply it to our hearts. First of all, Lord, in salvation, we pray for children here, young people, adults, here among us who are listening online that do not know you, that truly, Lord, have good motives. They want to do the right thing. but They've never recognized their sin against the holy God. They've never come to you humbly in repentance to ask you for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray for one who is trying to earn their good works, earn their salvation by good works. We pray for any young person who is trusting in the salvation of his parents. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would take away the blindness from the eyes so that everyone can see their need of Christ as their Savior. And that his precious blood would wash them from their sin. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, who have been saved by grace and only by grace through faith, we thank you for the work of your Son, for his blood that was shed for us upon the mercy seat. And we pray that you would open our eyes to understand that our good motives are not good enough. But help us to seek you in your word every day, especially in those moments of making decisions, so that we obey what your word says, so that we follow your will instead of our own. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Help us to recognize when we have done this, to seek your forgiveness and to seek the forgiveness of others. We pray that you would bless this local church, that you would bring each one together. We pray that it would be a place where men and women come and hear the gospel and are saved. We pray that you would bless the communion of the saints, the love one for another, the preaching of your word. We pray that your hand would be upon this place and that you would fulfill your good word. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank our brother for that very searching word today and pray that the Lord would help us all. Um, this is a powerful portion of Scripture and uh, one that is so instructive to, to all our hearts. We're going to sing as our closing hymn number 550, and it's a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Please let's stand to sing. Father, we pray that the word that we have heard today would be written on our hearts indelibly by the Holy Spirit, and that we would surrender and submit our wills to your holy will revealed in the word. And dear Lord, keep us from a double tongue. Keep us from hypocrisy from play-acting, from going through the motions of playing at church or our Christian profession. Dear Lord, we want to be genuine 
We want to be real. We want to be those who are submissive to the authority of the Word of God. And so, Father, grant to us that today. Speak on to every one of our hearts. And Lord, deal with any who are without Christ today, that they would come to trust, taste, and see that the Lord is good. So, Father, part us now in your fear, in your holy will. We pray that as we come back tonight, we will again be very, very conscious of the Spirit's working and abiding with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.